I distinctly remember thinking, I wish I didn't know them quite as well because I knew each of their wives, I knew all of their kids. And I remember thinking, if there is a 50 caliber machine gun on that vessel and it has a, a shot at that helicopter, then not all of us will be coming home. And it was a, quite a, a sort of moving moment. Right at the 11th hour, so just before we were about to launch, we had a call with the Prime Minister who said, go ahead and seize the ship. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. 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 I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top of She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis are two former officers of the Special Air Service Regiment. Now in Civvy Street, they're armed with MBAs. I will, hopefully, get them back on the podcast to share their full stories of service. But today is my joint conversation with them about lessons of command and leadership they took from their time in the SASR and how they're applying those to their work and lives today. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with two guests. Ben Pronk, welcome to the show. G'day, Alex. And Tim Curtis, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Alex. So I have to say, Ben, after having your younger brother, Dan Pronk, on this show three or four times now, it's nice to finally have you on as a guest. The pressure's certainly on. He rates pretty well, Dan, on, on his various podcasts, and certainly the one we did together has been a, a success on our one. So hopefully I can uh, keep the numbers up for you, Alex. He was just the undercar. This is the main event. We've got Pronk Senior on the show, so we'll see what that can bring us. Before we get into our chat on leadership today, I was wondering if you two could please give me a quick summary of your military service and resume in life beyond the uniform. Okay, so Ben's asked me to go first, Alex. I was the child of a military family and so lived a very nomadic lifestyle from the start and at 17 joined the army, went through the Australian Defence Force Academy, did a Bachelor of Arts, majoring in mostly football and then spent 12 months at the Royal Military College, graduated to infantry and with a strong desire to be in the SAS regiment. I did selection in 1996 and I did about a decade of my time in and out of the units on operations and doing things that were quite interesting domestically, including assisting the counter-terrorist capability for the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games. And in 2002, post 9-11, assisting in the raising of the East Coast counter-terrorism capability in Sydney. At the end of my squadron command time in the SAS, I had a strong yearning to be in business, having taken this transition through business school. And for some unknown reason, I went and joined the United Nations, where I was the principal's security and safety planner for the 2005 Afghan parliamentary elections, which was an incredible project. On election day, we opened some 30,000 locations, every single district in Afghanistan. And for those that have been following the challenges there, that's quite some feat. I then stayed the balance of the next nine years in the Middle East, running two groups of companies, the largest being around about $100 million turnover company in 14 countries and around about 1,400 staff. And I came home about five years ago being incredibly homesick and didn't realise actually how homesick I was until I arrived home. 
rejoined forces with Ben and now we're implementing mad and crazy ideas together. Before we hear Ben's background, here's his brother Dan recounting their childhood and military influences. This clip is from Dan's interview with Sharon Maskell-Dare in Season 2, Number 31, Dr Dan Pronk, Volume 1. So tell us first of all a bit about your childhood and how your journey into the military first came about. I guess going going back to my childhood, the army particularly was very uh, familiar to me. My, my father had been a, a military helicopter pilot and so from an early age that we were exposed to army, particularly aviation, lots of time spent out on base at, at air shows and open days and those sort of things. And that was back in the days where you could get out and, and go for the families were invited to go up in the aircraft and, and go out and they'd set up and we'd, we'd go out and we'd shoot blank in M60s and travel around in armoured vehicles. And so I guess from a very early age, both my brother and I had that military exposure. Uh, it was very familiar to us. It was it was demystified, if you like. We, we knew uh, to a degree from that perspective what it was all about. So we grew up with it. We grew up in, in, in an army household, of course. We, we moved regularly as a result of that. And I guess that was to a degree formative in our ability to, my brother and I, to be able to uproot and plug into to different schools and build a new support community, which, which so I suppose from a childhood, the, like I said, the military was very familiar to us. And, and uh, I guess that influenced to a degree later in life when, when both my brother and I did eventually drift into the, the military. So did you know from a young age that you were going to join up yourself? Was it always on your radar? No, not not for me at all. So I think maybe uh, my, my brother, absolutely, from the earliest age, he was going to be nothing but a soldier and he ended up pursuing that career uh, to a very high level. And now let's hear from Ben. I, like Tim, grew up as the, the son of a, an army officer. We moved around a lot. Dad was a helicopter pilot. And I think through that, I got a real taste for just how good a life as, a, as an army officer could be. I took a year off after school and then joined the Defence Force Academy. I graduated from ADFA at the very top of my class. And then uh, the next year, due to some fraternisation and AWOL issues, <laughs> I graduated <laughs> RMC as a, as a lowly Lance Corporal, but went up to uh, an infantry battalion after that, the 2nd Battalion up in Townsville, a couple of years there, at the very end of which Timor kicked off. So I deployed to Timor with Recon Sniper Platoon in Touraya and then came back to Australia, got posted to the School of Infantry in Singleton which if you ever want incentive to finish an SAS selection course, I can recommend a posting as a supernumerary officer to the School of Infantry. Yeah, that's where I was too for my selection year. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it certainly keeps you going when the chips are down on selection, which I did about two weeks after that posting. So very early in the piece in 2000, successful there, posted across, essentially bounced back and forth from the SAS regiment after that. I served as a, a trooper squadron and ultimately the unit commander at SASR and interspersed with that were a number of uh, just amazing postings. I did a year in the United States on exchange with their military. I did staff college in the United Kingdom and then a couple of headquarters stints with special ops headquarters at that stage, which was still in Potts Point, which is uh, is beautiful. The facility at Bungendore is wonderful, but um, certainly Potts Point a lot more scenic. I finished up in uniform at about the end of 2016. I did full-time MBA and that was about the point that Tim and my paths recrossed. He'd been my squadron commander when I was first in the unit and uh, we'd stayed in touch since then and through my MBA year got talking and, and decided we'd start our current venture. Been just on a year in that and we're still solvent. It's going, <laughs> it's going well. Which is incredible. <laughs> quite a lot of life experience we can draw on. Not calling you old, just uh, you've packed a lot into both of your lives so far. 
Our topic for today is command and leadership in the SAS and the Special Air Service Regiment and Special Forces in general have that real mystery, aura, that shine that makes it universally intriguing and popular. And leadership is something intrinsically interesting because it is prevalent across all aspects of life, from within the family, home, to a group of friends, a sporting team, a business. But the execution of leadership and the importance of it in such an elite and high-intensity environment such as the SAS must carry with it, I imagine, an even greater weight and pressure. But that's just me, a civilian, from the outside looking in. You guys have lived it done it. So I want to hear your perspective on all that and we'll get to a specific anecdote in a moment to elucidate this part of the conversation, but what's your immediate take on that? The thing that struck me most about on reflecting in my, my time as commanding officer was the legacy of the unit. That particular role was more than just you in the seat at the time sort of directing traffic. It was about, I guess, custodianship of a unit with a very proud history and a very important place in the Australian military canon. And so there was that sort of gravitas to the, the position that I don't think I'd expected coming up. And so I think that part was certainly very profound in terms of commanding the unit. But in terms of the actual leadership challenges, in some ways, it was actually quite easy in that it is an extremely high performing unit. And I guess if you take any organisation of about 30 odd thousand people, which is the Australian Army, and you take the top echelon of that, you're going to get some pretty impressive men and women. And so in many ways, that makes your job easier. You are, to coin a phrase, reigning in a stallion rather than kicking a mule. It's uh, more a matter of providing proper guidance and making sure things are going towards the desired end state rather than trying to sort of constantly motivate a sluggish workforce. We often, Ben and I, share the opinion that leadership is a contact sport. And, and what we mean by that is it is a truly belly-to-belly, human-to-human endeavour. And you've got to constantly be connecting and communicating in order to be a good leader in or out of uniform. I also think that leadership is a team sport. Often people think of the military like it's this hierarchical system with the guys with the big stuff on their shoulders being at the top and and the others down the bottom. Certainly in the SAS regiment, it's not really like that. It's highly inclusive. It's highly participative. And that pyramid really flattens out. So you actually have a group of leaders, of course, one or more are more empowered than the others. But that's the strength of the unit is the very participative style you're all that well-trained and you're all stallions rather than mules. You know each other that much more interpersonally, so of course you call upon each other for advice and ideas and aren't going to necessarily stick to that strict rank structure for who can generate the notions and execute the commands, but the ultimate responsibility still falls upon you as leader. It's not exclusive to the regiment. That, I think, occurs all across the army and, of course, in many other workforces. But I think it is probably more pronounced in the the regiment. There is a greater maturity in general, you know, both age and experience of the, the people within the unit. And it allows, I guess, a less formal rank relationship such that you can leverage off people's opinions and then as a leader, make a decision. And once you've made that decision, then people will move out. They'll respect that decision has been made. It, of course, doesn't always work exactly that way. And please, while I think special forces around the world love the mystique that surrounds them and and this sort of aura of invincibility, it's just like any other workforce, albeit with a slightly higher calibre individual in the the ranks. There are still stuff-ups. There are still errors of judgment. There are still mistakes made. It's certainly not any kind of superhuman endeavour. I think the other thing is that the unit encourages that inclusive culture. You 
probably wouldn't be considered a good leader in the unit if you didn't have that participative style. And so that we've talked again previously about this, but that very much strengthens the plans. Some of the challenges are really due to the dynamism the creative thought and the independence of a lot of the unit members. And I remember being a squadron commander. We had outside of my office regularly were guys that were troopers, the most junior rank, who had great ideas and they wanted their idea to be heard. So that that's always one of the unique style of challenges in a high-performance team is just giving them the time, the airplay, and being able to modify, moderate, allow or deny their ideas. Let's apply these principles which you guys have talked about on in more detail in your podcast and we'll get back to that later but i want to apply these principles as we've briefly canvassed now to a specific incident and we talked ahead about discussing the pong su yeah that's right so back in 2003 a very young ben pronk and a slightly older tim curtis actually served in the same squadron in the sas when i was a squadron commander ben was my troop commander and heading into easter 2003 we were just completing some administration and sitting in the conference room down in the recovery squadron or the counterterrorism squadron when the phone started ringing and we were called up to regimental headquarters and the commanding officer at the time gave us a brief that nearly genuinely went something like this tim a north korean drug ship has just set a load of drugs ashore at lawn and a dead body has been washed up on shore wrapped in kelp. You have to prepare to go and board and seize the ship. That was the intelligence that we had. And uh, fascinating what rolled on from there. But we activated our planning team. We did some broad time and space. We realised that in order to get the majority of the team across to Sydney, which is ultimately where we were departing from to intercept the merchant vessel Ponsu, which was a large freighter, that uh, it would take probably 12 hours for Air Force to get there for us to get everything prepared and to fly across. Little did we know that the majority, in fact, all of the force element would fly Qantas. And so uh, shortly into our planning cycle, we decided the force package and what needed to go that we had to throw out the window as the command group were given their tickets on Qantas flight to Sydney. And we raced out to the airport on the way, picking up Ben's lead team commander. It was one of those fantastic, I guess, quintessential SAS experiences. We, as Tim described, we were literally sort of drinking coffee in the the ready room. The phones start ringing. We turn on the TV, and there's there's aerial footage on Sky News of this vessel, and obviously that's what the phones were ringing about. And from a personal perspective, it was quite funny. I was very early in the piece of dating my now wife. And I was actually supposed to pick her up from the airport. She'd been interstate. So I was going to pick her up that evening. We were going to go have dinner with her parents. I'd not met her parents. And then, um, yeah, have a, a weekend together. And of course, as I'm bolting sort of to get the Qantas flight, I um, had to make the call, darling, um, I won't be at the airport to pick you up. And of course, there's that question, well, where will you be? Can't say. When will you be home? Can't say. You know, how long will you be Oh, home? how convenient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think she thought that, yeah, the other lady was at play or something, but she stuck with it. And the SAS being that force of last resort, people would think logically that would be well informed by comprehensive intelligence packages. But fast forward a little bit to our economy class seats, Ben, and we had the in-flight magazine out with the map open, doing some baseline tactical planning on the flight to Sydney. No exaggeration. Yes. Also, people wouldn't 
picture necessarily a Qantas flight as the mode of transport for when you're getting in transit to a you know high intensity operation. And it was quite funny, as Tim said, you know, we spent all this time and you know really fantastic plans to develop a force package that can fly anywhere very quickly. But if you can fly quicker in a time sensitive situation on a, a Qantas flight, then that's what you do, and, and that's exactly what we ended up doing. We walked into headquarters special operations in Sydney oh, sometime after midnight with our plan on a in-flight magazine. I mentioned that we spun past to pick up Ben's lead team commander who'd had the day off and he didn't have time to get changed. So he came on the flight in a set of board shorts, a blue singlet and flip-flops. When we walked into the secure compartmented space at headquarters special operations, it absolutely brought the house down. These staff officers that have been beavering away on the true intelligence picture just couldn't believe that there were the majority of well-dressed squadron command group and then a lead team commander in his board shorts. So the rest of the squadron also came over on a later Qantas flight and we joined HMAS Stewart, so one of the Royal Australian Navy frigates on Operation Sorbet. Now, the interesting thing about Operation Sorbet, and whilst it has been pinned up by uh, many as a classic operation, it was truly interdepartmental. There were two state police forces, the Tasmanian and the New South Wales Police Force, the Federal Police Coast Watch, a range of intelligence agencies, Navy, of course, Army, and also special operations inside this force package. The other interesting thing as we boarded the ship and looked at the Met forecast was the severity of the seas. We were going into Sea State 6, which was profound, and the Met and as we did our planning, we didn't want to execute actually off the frigate. We wanted to execute off the mainland with a helicopter heavy force that would fly directly to the Pongsu and seize and hold it. But uh, that plan wasn't approved. And so we had to, to modify and we ultimately came up with a force package that boarded the Stuart, complete with everything off that Qantas flight, weapons included, and set C in C State 6. I believe there was some fast roping on the deck from a Seahawk helicopter as well as climbing on the side from some of the rigid hull inflatable boats. Yeah. As Tim had mentioned, the, the fact that the Pongsu was uh, steaming erratically and was likely to be outside of reach of a shore-based operation, we, we had to go off the, the vessel, which limited, of course, the means we could get on the actual target ship. So we were, were limited to the ship's organic helicopter, a Seahawk. Now, of course, these things, Seahawks, fantastic aircraft, but not designed as troop assault ships. They're designed to hunt submarines, amongst other things. And so a large part of the cabin space is taken up with um, avionics equipment. So it was a, a very tight fit on there. But as Tim mentioned, the sea state was so high that we weren't sure that our small boats would be able to actually establish entry onto the vessel. So we needed to get a quite a large size force squashed in the back of that Seahawk was actually A, pretty claustrophobic, and B, in hindsight, an amazing piece of flying in the end from the, the pilot who managed to put this thing in between two pitching cargo derricks that were, were sort of threatening to swat it out of the sky to allow us to, to rope down the teams from the, the Seahawk. In fact, Ben and my biggest argument on the operation was what helicopter I got to go in. I was I was adamant <laughs> it should be helicopter, you know, lift number one, and Ben was saying, no, you should be in the very last, and I think we settled. I got a cramped-in seat in the second lift, so helicopter. Too. I think I did it very respectfully. I, I certainly wanted Tim's guidance. I certainly <laughs> wanted the, the command, but but I, I much preferred to have a sniper in there instead of uh, a top tips from Tim on the, the lead helicopter. Well, classic learned insubordination. I said, Ben, I've got to be in the first aircraft. He said, no, you're not. You're absolutely <laughs> not. And, you know, talking about planning and the absence of information and just being able to work your way through that chaos and uncertainty right at the 11th hour. So just 
before we were about to launch, we had a call with the Prime Minister who said, go ahead and seize the ship. We got this last minute piece of information, a couple of pieces of information. I'll talk to one, Ben can talk to the other. The first bit was North Korean Special Operations Forces were likely to be on board. And for those that follow some of uh, North Korea's GDP, they make a significant amount of their GDP through illicit drug trade. So we, um, at last minute, had to be prepared for that. In addition to that, they had North Korean special operations on a previous episode up near Japan had engaged a Japanese Coast Guard with a 50 caliber machine gun. So Ben's thoughts on putting a, a sniper in the helicopter was <laughs> probably appropriate. So this was occurring just before we were about to launch. So we, we launched pretty much at first light. So the evening before, we're getting this intelligence, which seemed to indicate that it was going to be an opposed boarding. And I remember sitting in the galley with a number of the members of the assault force. And to your earlier point about it being a close-knit unit and knowing everyone very well, I distinctly remember thinking, I wish I didn't know them quite as well because I knew each of their wives, I knew all of their kids. And I remember thinking, if there is a 50 caliber machine gun on that vessel and it has a, a shot at that helicopter, then not all of us will be coming home. And it was a quite a, a sort of moving moment. The other thing that was um, quite interesting, part of the rationale behind the intelligence brief that was likely to be an opposed boarding was that some of the aerial imagery had identified a very high-tech antenna array at the rear of the superstructure on the Pong Su, and they figured it was some kind of electronic warfare or very sophisticated electronics, which led them to believe that this was a, a really state-sponsored and likely to be defended very vigorously. When we actually boarded and cleared the vessel, that high-tech sophisticated electronic warfare array turned out to be a washing line complete with the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the captain's underwear on it. So it was bad intelligence. That's right. And so you didn't encounter elite North Korean special forces on the boat either? Well, difficult to say. A couple of interesting things did happen on the boat. Firstly, it was a grain carrier and, and it was empty. Um, the second, if you do some reviews, that there was a significant amount of drugs that were kept on board. So that had to be facilitated by someone. And it was unlikely just to be facilitated by ship's crew. I don't think we're any clearer on whether North Korean special operations were on board. We do know that things were thrown over the side. Naturally, a frigate can't appear from nowhere. So when we closed with the Pongsu, that took quite a significant um, period of time. And then there were a range of protocols that we had to go through before we were authorised by the Prime Minister to board the vessel. The Navy ship steward had to make requests, heave to and lower a ladder. And we'd actually built all of that into the tactical plan. So this interdepartmental piece that I mentioned before and the integration of planning, we had asked them as part of these series of requests to the Pongsu to do things, to weave in things that were going to be advantageous to our tactical plan. One thing that we had decided upon is that we had to have both a helicopter assault force and a boat assault force. And for those that have ever seen a picture of the Pongsu, the freeboard, that is the distance between the surface of the water and the point by which you're going to climb over onto the ship is significant. And the challenges to come from a small boat were profound. So we needed some tactical advantage. Now, as it transpired, the skipper of the Pong Su said he couldn't speak English, all the crew were asleep, and he didn't acquiesce to any of those demands. But we went ahead with that helicopter assault force, boat assault force, combined assault. The other interesting thing anecdotally was as we went through the, the assault, and there's not much that you can lead during a maritime counterterrorism operation. You just have to have a certain degree of trust that the tactical plan, improvisation and initiative takes hold. 
was that we had a report on the radio of an improvised explosive device having been found and marked. And uh, as a result, we had to call over explosive ordnance team from the Stuart that were winched into place. And we marked that particular device, guided the explosive ordnance device team down to what we thought was an explosive device inside one of the cabins. And we all put our fingers near our ears as the team took a look and they came out of the cabin and proudly reported that it was a battery charger. <laughs> but uh, actually, I, I did take a photograph because it looked precisely like the sort of thing that in training you would develop to simulate an explosive device. Will you guys successfully take hold of that situation? All the crew received drug charges. The 27 crew members are discharged from that and the four officers are eventually acquitted as well. But the Australian government destroys the Pong Su as a strong message against international drug smuggling. It's interesting to unpack. There's a lot in this particular anecdote in regards to leadership and really backing up that notion of leadership, not just as a uh, contact sport, but I would say a full contact sport. You'd seen footage of the Pong Su on TV while you're receiving calls. So this event's already getting media attention. You have minimal time and minimal intelligence. It's all very last minute. You come up with a plan and that gets rejected and you have to go back to the drawing board and come up with something again. There's potential opposing forces threats. Uh, you have less than satisfactory equipment and the weather would oppose difficulties as well. So you're juggling quite a few balls in the air at any one moment. That's right. There's some interesting anecdotes from the leadership side that perhaps I can share, Alex. And the first one is that leaders must look after themselves. You've got to manage your own fatigue. We're very good at doing our subordinates. We're very good at telling guys to take a break, take a rest. But very seldom do we look internally to our own fatigue. And uh, I know that Ben and I and our other tactical planners really ran incredibly hard over a 36-hour period. And I remember finishing a brief, and no exaggeration, just pretty much lowering myself to the ground exactly where I'd finished the brief and sleeping for an hour. And I didn't manage my fatigue very well. When I actually roped onto the ship, I lost the superstructure just for a split second. I probably couldn't even put a time on it. But what had happened in the fast roping onto the deck is that I'd twisted and I was expecting as I raised my weapon to see the superstructure and didn't see it. I wasn't looking towards the stern. I was looking towards the bow. And on reflection, I put that down to really bad fatigue management. I was overwhelmed, that whole situational awareness piece. Of course, the rest of the squadron were watching the OC <laughs> rope on and charge up in the wrong direction once it hit the deck. I'm sure they didn't put it down to fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> They'd seen me in the, in the killing house before. <laughs> um, and the, the other one, and, and there is a picture on our social media of a person sitting in the skipper's seat of the Pong Su. That, for me, speaks volumes. The first volume it speaks is how little you need to lead a high-performance team. Because below the decks, below that bridge deck, there were guys going into every nook and every cranny, detaining suspects, cuffing, moving, centralising, and all of that just happened largely or against a tactical plan but with a lot of initiative. The other thing about that particular picture is the loneliness of leadership. And not saying that that particular person on the skipper's seat was lonely, but leadership fundamentally can be lonely. And uh, it's a kind of thing that people just need to be cognizant of. And the last takeaway from that picture of the balaclava guy in a black suit on the skipper's seat at the Pong Su, and we often talk to leaders about this, that good leaders do less. And I'm not saying they delegate severely, but you're able to do that because you've impressed upon people intent and mission command and everyone's working to that intent, regardless of where they happen to be on the ship or off the ship. That um, is an incredibly powerful thing for a leader. The big one for me and I've banged on about this in our podcast, is this idea of complexity. 
I'd always thought that as a leader, you come up with this plan, you execute it, it all goes smoothly, you feel in control the whole time. But to your earlier comments, Alex, life is not like that. You know, things come up, there's always messiness and what Clausewitz had called frictions and things like the weather, things like not having our own boats or, you know, the optimal number of helicopters. But, and this is one of the beautiful things about a force like the SAS, where there's no one else. It needs to get done and uh, it doesn't matter that you haven't got your optimal helicopters or that the weather's bad, you you still need to roll something out. And so that uh, ability to, in many ways, muddle through, just keep adapting to the situation, keep understanding what objective is, what the mission is, and keep working out how you're going to achieve that even when things start falling to bits, when things are suboptimal. That to me is um, one of the big leadership lessons I took away. It never felt clean. It rarely felt like we were in the driving seat. You know, we were very reactive to a number of the external forces, but ultimately we were able to put together a successful mission nevertheless. I mean, that was a really good example of mission command uh, in the execution of that actual assault in that we'd always thought, I think, in planning that the the helo force would be the ones that would get on first. And so they were tasked with the most important responsibility, and that's uh, seizing the bridge. Due to the fact that it was an extremely difficult aviation feat to get that aircraft in a hover and dispatch ropes. The helo force actually took a lot longer. And this was coupled with the fact that the guys in the boats were just absolutely superstars, amazing piece of um, boat driving and, and resilience for the assault force from the boats. They actually got onto the ship first. But even though they were tasked with other areas of responsibility, they knew that the intent, the primary focus was to get that bridge. And so they quickly realigned and went out and, uh, and seized the bridge, which was a, a fantastic example of what Tim was just referring to, that understanding of the intent, the bigger picture, what was important, and being able to rapidly change tack and, and go and execute on that. I was going to say earlier that I know I'm speaking with a couple of officers here because you brought up Ben Carvon Clausewitz, but if anyone's going to cite on war, I'm not surprised it's a couple of former SAS officers. There's another good uh, Clausewitz statement that's incredibly relevant here, Alex, and that is war is a continuation of politics by other means. We saw it actually in the seizing of MV Tampa, the use of the SAS in that operation, and also in the seizing of the MV Pongsu. Very Clausewitzian. Well, thank you for that discussion on unpacking some notions of SAS leadership using that particular anecdote. How have you found the nature of leadership and its burden change when you're commanding a team or troop in the SASR as opposed to leading anywhere else? Or does it not change? I think the principles are the same. The big difference, as I mentioned before, is who you're leading. And there's a sort of triangle model of leadership that talks about this interplay between the leader as an individual, the followers and the situation. And I think all of those are going to have an impact. Certainly even within the SAS regiment, it's a very different uh, style of leadership that you might approach to a business as usual, day-to-day barracks kind of issue as you would in a gunfight in Afghanistan. And so there's always those nuanced differences with those two external factors, the followers and the the situation. The one thing that I've found most profound about leaving the military is the military is fundamentally not a profit-making entity. There are obviously budget constraints and it's not an unlimited pool of resources. But most of what we do is training. Most of what the the military does is, is preparation rather than actual operations. And so seeing in a business sense where money is so important in, in a lot of organisations, it provides a different nuance and I think adds a lot of added difficulties in a leadership respect that aren't found as, as much in the military. 
do you think that's to do with the more intrinsic nature of the goal you're setting? You know, in leadership, in business, like you say, there's that inherent obligation for profit and other concerns, whereas in the military environment, your objectives might be less cluttered, more clear-cut in trying to achieve something. There is an element of that, but I, I wouldn't overstate that. And, you know, I certainly don't want to appear to be saying that military is this sort of noble, altruistic profession and, and all of business course. is just after money. I just think that um, the constraint, be able to have to make those compromises in terms of the training and the time you devote towards things like professional development in a business sense is an added complication that the military doesn't have to, to deal with as much. You know, in many ways, the training is the focus. And so you can get some wonderful professional development experiences through the military that would be difficult to replicate in other organisations because they come at a cost. I think regardless of commercial focus, not commercial focus, in uniform, out of uniform, regardless of what level a leader you are, good leaders adapt and good leaders evolve. They have to learn and they learn from reflecting on things that have gone well and gone badly. And a key enabler for all of that is communications and that further breaks down into two parts. They have to be able to speak well, but I think they even more than that, they have to be able to listen even better. Well, there is a wider conversation to be had here about both of your transitions from military into civilian life. But for today's chat, just on leadership, I wanna focus just on that particular component. And how did you find then using those skills that you just described, Tim, and sort of those principles of leadership? How did you find moving that from a military context into a business context? Funny, you know, as an ex-SAS guy with an MBA, whenever I'm confronted with a challenge, I seldom reach for an MBA textbook. I generally always reflect on my military service and the things that I've done there. And not suggesting for a second that I'm the most perfect leader, but I draw the soft skills that I remember worked very well in that high performance team construct. I do like to think that you know, I, I delegate and communicate okay, and in doing that, hope to draw the best from the team. And Simon Sinek actually has got a great way of speaking about this. You know, we talk often about leaders eating last. Simon Sinek talks about leaders speaking last. I really like that. Uh, it takes an incredible amount of discipline for a leader not to say anything in the room, allow everyone else to say his or her piece, and then and then summarise at the end. But but that's a really really profound, unique skill. I think that's a great sign of also hubris is not getting in the way. Leadership is just trying to reach that end point in the best and most collegial way possible, not about ego or presence. And I think that's one of the things about the army in particular, the leadership model. You look at those very junior levels of command when you're a, a platoon or a troop commander, you are almost exclusively the youngest person in the organisation that you're leading and you're generally the least experienced and you've got to be able to balance that ability to listen to the experience that's represented within your organisation but still get on your hind feet, make a decision and as Tim mentioned, communicate that and inspire people to follow it. And I think that teaches you good lessons as a, as a young military officer and I think you take it one step further, you spoke about hubris before, you tend to get that knocked out of you pretty quickly in the Army in general and in the SAS in particular, if you come in as a young officer trying to uh, tell people how good you are, you'll very quickly get corrected on, on that particular topic. Oh, I'm sure. And now you guys, two ex-SAS guys with MBAs, and you're taking all these leadership lessons and life experience, and you're channeling that now through the Unforgiving 60 podcast, a show I've been thoroughly enjoying. For my listeners, what's the premise behind this show and what inspired you guys to start it? 
I guess its inspiration comes from two poems. One you've mentioned, which is our title, The Unforgiving Minute, which is a line out of Richard Kipling's poem, If. And so we wanted to work out how different people that we found impressive were filling their unforgiving minutes, how they were squeezing the most out of life. And the second poem that we both found very inspirational is uh, The Golden Journey to Samarkand by Flecker. And he talks about the pilgrims who are always going a little further. And that idea of just incremental one step after the other is very inspirational to both of us. And so that was the genesis of the concept. We've basically just been seeking out those people who are leading lives less ordinary to find out those two things, how they're filling their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Our guests are reflective of the fact that our lives are very ordinary. In our opinion, we take inspiration from our guests and I challenged both Ben and I at the very outset of the podcast with a question, who are we inspiring and how? And really all we're doing is we're facilitating and flow mastering these incredible guests with amazing experiences who, at the end of the day, are just normal people. As my brother would put it, average 70 kilo dickheads. (laughs) That's right. Someone like yourself or your brother, Ben, if you regard yourselves as average 70 or 70 plus kilo dickheads, although that might be how you see yourselves, you've lived a career many will never even get close to. So I think there's something still insightful to take away from that, just purely how those unusual experiences or those shiny, cool experiences shaped a person and informed them in life going forward. Without a doubt. And I think that kind of vicarious learning, you know, I look at some of the guests we've had on and hold them in an amazing amount of awe and esteem. We had a lady who's running a um, facility in, in Myanmar doing a lot of work on social good. I still don't understand how she does it, how she can continue to achieve such spectacular things. And so being able to hear her perspectives and, and trying to get some tips from her has been extremely insightful for myself personally and, and hopefully for people who are listening to the show as well. Where can people find you guys and the show on social media? So we're on all social media platforms. You just need to uh, search Unforgiving60. That's Unforgiving60. We're also at www.unforgiving60.com. The show is on all of your favourite podcast channels. And you can get in touch with us directly at debrief at unforgiving60.com. Thank you, Ben and Tim, for this great conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, Alex. You can check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook and Instagram at lifeonthelinepodcast. And follow us on Twitter at LOTLpod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget...